The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning, our scripture comes again from 2 Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Calatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Titius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ebulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them they are Hermionus and Philetus, who have answered from the truth who have served from the truth, saying that this resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, folks. Good to see you. Good to see all of you at home through the camera, whether you're here in Nashville or somewhere on fall break. Uh, grateful to be worshiping the Lord with you. This is our last sermon in the Second Timothy series, and then next week we'll do a three-part series on politics. And, uh, and then after that, uh, our, our Advent series is going to be called A Weary World Rejoices, which uh, we felt was an appropriate uh, lyric grab from, from an ancient uh, Advent hymn. And we're going to be looking especially at Advent passages in uh, the book of Isaiah for that. So very much looking forward to that. But before we get into the scripture, I want to direct us again to the screen for the prayer of illumination. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, and your great glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So uh, just this last week, uh, I, I put a little something up on social media about things I miss most about church since COVID happened. Here are the things I miss most about church since COVID happened. Gathering closely around tables up here. Kids scurrying everywhere unrestrained. Senior saints, people with special needs, and others who've had to avoid every kind of gathering, including church, uh, because they're in the risk categories. Seeing full faces while we sing. And hugs. Those are the things I said I miss about church since COVID. Uh, And then somebody on social media under the anonymous name Theology Professor chimed in on my comment and said, your motto in life should be to hold on to nothing. Uh, In other words, you shouldn't miss anything because Christ should be enough. Should that be a Christian's motto in life? Hold on to nothing. I don't think so. Genesis says about paradise before sin and suffering came into the world, that it's not good for man to be alone. And we see this played out in Paul as he, as he writes to this young uh, protege named Timothy. And he says in the first chapter, which you, you may remember these verses from an earlier message, I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. Then he says, here, do your very best to come to me soon. This sort of remote letter writing thing um, is not sufficient. Then he says, also, get Mark and and bring him with you as well. You've got Paul the Apostle, who who says very clearly in this passage, Christ came through when he was all alone. Christ came through, but he still says, I need the people of Christ in order to experience completion. You know, Moses, when he was tired and exhausted from ministry, he needed Aaron and her to come alongside him and lift up his arms. David needed Jonathan. He also needed his mighty men in the desert to keep him from becoming discouraged and weary. Jesus, even Jesus, needed Mary, Martha, and his dear friend Lazarus. He needed the twelve. He needed the three, Peter, James, and John. He needed the one at certain times, John. And he cries out in his own moment of, of weakness and trial, will you please sit with me and watch and pray? Even the perfect son of God needs people. This desire for attachment, if you have it, Uh, it's not because there's something wrong with you, it's because there's something right with you. It's because you're made in the image of one God who is also three. God is a community. God is incomplete without the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus is agonizing at the cross because he's separated from the triune communion. To be separated from community and from communion is is to have a little bit of the image of God taken from us. And that little bit is also a significant bit. It's hard. And so, that, so today what, what we're going to do is we're going to end our study in 2 Timothy talking about the kind of attachment that God calls us to with each other, specifically as a church. Remember, Paul is an older minister, an older pastor, writing to a younger pastor about how to be a pastor.
what we, what we see here is that God calls us to be with each other. Uh, and, 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 and there are going to be three things that become our realities when we are with each other as the body of Christ. Number one, it's going to hurt sometimes. Number two, it's going to provide Christian community as the answer to its own hurt. And then it's going to hold the power of encouragement for us all. And so let's start with the reality that Christian community hurts sometimes. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said that if you love anything, uh, that includes people, your heart will be wrung and possibly even broken at some point. And we see this in Paul. Paul. Paul is very open about the fact that people have left him to do the work of the ministry all on his own, especially when it got hard for him. He's in prison here. He's been on trial, falsely accused, things like that. And when people have maliciously sought to hurt him. His lament is first over a man named Alexander who, who had malicious intent. Alexander didn't just have a moment of weakness. He actually held malice against Paul. And as Paul says it, he did me great harm. Never apologized, never turned from it. He did me great harm. That's, that's the verdict on Alexander. And, and, he, and he says to Timothy, watch out or else he might try to do you great harm as well. Sleep with, your eye, with one eye open on this guy. Keep your distance from him. But then there's a man named Demas who was caught up in worldliness, it says. We don't know any more details than that. And then in the 16th verse, Paul refers to a time where he was on trial, probably the trial that put him into prison uh, here as he writes the letter to the Philippians. And he says, when I was put on trial, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. So, so Paul has ill-intended critics like Alexander. They attack him, they accuse him, they discredit him. And all of Paul's supporters, it appears, said, you got this. Don't want to, don't want to have any part of this. Going gets tough, you're on your own. He's left alone. This happens. Church people hurt church people. Paul's talking about how he got hurt by church people. One was very malicious and he no no longer belonged in the community. And Paul's very clear about that. But others weren't malicious. They were just cowardly. And didn't come to Paul's defense. And he was hurt. There are other ways that church people hurt people. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is about church people hurting church people. Here's a list of, of some of the things that the first letter uh, of Paul to the Corinthians says. That they're judging each other. There's major division in their community over very minor concerns. People are committing adultery with each other. They're suing each other. They're suing each other for divorce without cause. Some are flaunting their Christian freedom before people who have a tender conscience. The rich are excluding the poor. And they're leaving the poor hungry. How do you explain this? 
we're supposed to become better when, 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 when we become part of Christ and when we believe the gospel, we're actually supposed to become good people, right? Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love one another, encourage one another, build one another up. What's going on here? Well, here, here's, here's, one of the, here's one of the reasons why this happens in churches. Jesus taught it. He was very clear. He said, he said in the church, in the body of Christ, there are sheep, there are true believers, and there are goats who actually, in the end, will be proven not to have ever really believed at all. They're there for some ulterior other reason. He says there's wheat, and there are also weeds. And, and, and Jesus was explicit on that one. He said the weeds sometimes look a whole lot like grass. You know, they, they, they look a whole lot like wheat. And, 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 and God will determine at the end, and God will reveal at the, at the end of days and at the end of time, who was among the wheat and who was among the weeds. And so there's always that dynamic. And in the same way that Pharaoh's magicians would mimic uh, the divine miracles that, that took place through Moses, the true prophet, Pharaoh's magicians would mimic those miracles in order to discredit Moses. In the same way, there's mimicking. There's, there's a mimicking of, of gospel-centered Christianity that happens inside churches. And so that's one of the reasons why people hurt people. But another reason is that every actual true Christian, everyone who's among the sheep, everyone who's among the wheat, is duplicitous. We carry around with us the, what, what the Bible calls the old man and the new man. We carry around what the Bible calls the flesh the sin-desiring aspect of a human being, and the spirit, the God-desiring uh, part of, of, of a believer in particular. We're duplicitous. I mean, we, we see this in a, in a, in a stunning conversation that, 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 that Jesus has with his disciples, and it's specifically targeted on Peter. And Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you all say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter. And from this point forward, you're not going to be called Simon anymore. You're going to be called Petros. You're going to be called the rock. And on this foundation of what you have just professed, I will build my entire church on the words that you just said. In the same conversation, just a few moments later, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Because Peter was saying that, that, and, and assuming and concluding and verbalizing his belief that, that suffering could not be part of the mission of Christ. And so in the same conversation, Jesus says, you're the rock. And get behind me, Satan. We're duplicitous. You know, Peter, who said that, that even if everybody betrays Jesus, he won't betray Jesus. He will, he will die with Jesus. And who, who is it that, that betrays Jesus at the end? Well, there's Judas, who betrayed him once. And then there's Peter, who betra betrayed him three times. And then he, you know, eventually turns back. But there's this duplicitous reality 
for all of us. We never arrive. We never stop being sinned against. We never stop sinning, even with and among each other. It's part of life, even life in the body of Christ. You know, Soren Kierkegaard uh, speculated that, it, that had it been him instead of Peter, had he been in Peter's shoes, he says, I believe that I know my heart well enough to know that I would have betrayed Jesus too. I would have lost courage. Like all the people lost courage to, to come to Paul's defense when Paul was, was being attacked and accused and discredited and eventually incarcerated, prosecuted. One of the signs that you're actually a sheep, because you know, the, the, these, this kind of teaching often raises questions. Well, if they're sheep and they're goats and they're wheat and they're tares, how do I know which I am and, and which one I am? Here's, here's the sign of, of sheepness. You're contending not only with the injuries that have happened against you, which is what Paul is doing here, but you also contend with the injuries that have been inflicted by you. Easy to miss here how significant it is when when he says, bring Mark with you. Mark was somebody that Paul had in the past, you can find this in Acts chapter 15, dismissed because he had found Mark to have a personality quite similar to Timothy. He was a timid man. He was scared to get into the weeds. He was nervous about the hard aspects of ministry. Probably not somebody who's going to come to my defense, Paul concluded, if I get attacked or accused or discredited. And there's this argument that, that breaks out between Paul and Barnabas, whose, whose name means the son of encouragement. And Barnabas says, don't send Mark away. Don't reject Mark. Don't disqualify him. Don't discredit him. Come on, give him another chance. And Paul says, nope. And, and, and he goes on and does, his, does the work of his ministry. And Barnabas and Mark uh, go the other direction. And yet here we have Paul saying, bring Mark. Something's happened here. There's a grace that has occurred. There's a kindness that has occurred. And, and maybe some self-examination along the way with Paul. Maybe I was a bit too harsh on this young man. We can only speculate. But a true sheep is not only going to contend with the injuries that are done against them. They're also going to contend with the injuries inflicted by them. I've shared with you once before the story of, of, uh, that Paul Tripp shares in the, the beginning of his book uh, about pastoral ministry called Dangerous Calling. And it's in the introduction. And he talks about a season of his life where, where he was a pastor, he was pastoring a church, and he says, I was angry all the time. Like, everything was a fight. It, it just felt like me against the world, me against this, me against that, me against him, me against her, me against everything and everyone. I was just angry. And I remember coming home and started lashing out at my wife. And, and, and she told me to stop. And I said, no. And she said, yes. And, and, and then Paul Tripp says to his wife, do you realize that 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me? And she says, well, I guess that puts me in the 5%. Just the fact that he tells that story 
is a sign that he belongs to Jesus Christ. He's not just telling on other people. He's also telling on himself. That's what confession is. Confession is when we tell on ourselves. Confession is when we take ownership. And the ownership we take is as public as the sin that we committed. And that's what Paul Tripp does. That's what Paul the Apostle has done. The courage to say, I have not arrived yet. I am a big part of the problem. Or I am a main part of the problem here. The courage to be able to do that is a sign that you belong to Jesus. When Christians catch themselves in hypocrisy... When Christians catch themselves not living in line with the gospel that they believe. That is not a discredit to their faith. That is an establishment of their faith. If we don't come to Christ as a sinner, we can't come to Christ at all. He's got nothing for us. He's got nothing for us. If we don't have our own frailty and sin and weakness and shortcoming to present to him. It's the whole reason why he came. You go back to 1 Timothy, Paul makes that clear about himself. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I was a blasphemer. He gets very specific too. He's not just a general confessor. That's easy to do. He gets very specific. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. And yet Christ saved me. Why? So that, that the, the, the grandeur of his mercy could be put on display. That if Christ could save somebody like me, he can save anybody. So if you want a religion that says measure up, earn your spot, God helps those who help themselves, Christianity is not for you. But if you want one that says God helps those who cannot help themselves and and who continue to acknowledge and admit that they cannot help themselves, that's another story. And for that story, we get the word that Paul closes this wonderful letter with, grace. Grace be with you. Grace means free favor, free approval, earned completely by Jesus Christ on your behalf for which you did nothing. The only thing, Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing you can contribute to your own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So Christian community hurts sometimes. But it's also the answer, or it has within it the answer to its own hurt. There are two kinds of betrayals that Paul is contending with right now. One is malicious betrayal, which I've already talked about. That's Alexander who did him great harm. Alexander was a man who was injuriously divisive. But then there are others who betrayed Paul, not out of malice, but out of weakness, out of fear, out of a a kind of cowardness that made them not want to deal with the hard parts of ministry. Paul mentions Demos, he mentions others who deserted him and didn't come to his defense when he was being attacked. He says, it, he says this, they all deserted me. So he, he names what happens, he doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say, oh, no big deal, no problem. No, he said, 
you all deserted me. But here's what he says after it. May it not be held against them. That's grace applied in the context of community. You hurt me bad. May it not be held against you. And get Mark and bring him with you because he's very useful to me for ministry as well. These, these powerful affirmations for people that, 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 that Paul felt, you, like, you left me in a lurch. You left me all on my own. May the Lord not hold it against you. This is a display of how Christians are called and resourced to treat each other in conflict. Christians know better than to reduce one another to the very worst seasons or the very worst things that they've done. You are not your worst moment. You are not your worst season. Instead, you are everything that Jesus says you are, which I'll get to in a moment. We treat each other with grace. We say things like, may the Lord not hold it against them, because this is how God works with people who sin against him. You know, Jacob, the habitual liar and deceiver, God restores him eventually and makes him, gives him a limp and, and from his limp makes him the father of the entire nation of Israel. King David, after his adultery and murder, sends a prophet to him and the prophet calls him out, names what he's done, but the prophet also says, you're not going to die for what you've done. There's not going to be condemnation for you. Instead, there's going to be grace. And he ends up writing half of the Psalms, this David does. And he ends up being the one that Jesus affectionately refers to when he calls himself, when Jesus calls himself the son of David. And then there's Saul of Tarsus, the chief sinner against the Gentile Christian world. All of the sudden, his life's mission has become to make Gentile Christians. The apostle to the Gentile world was his assignment. That's how God works. There is no canceling. Christianity is about restoration, not cancellation. And so as one who's been restored, he now speaks words of restoration. May it not be held against them. I'm certain it's not lost on Paul in that moment that Paul was not the first person to ever say those words. In fact, when the, the, the first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen, was being put to death violently and viciously by religious zealots who saw his Christianity, Stephen's Christianity, as a threat, they put him to death, and as Stephen is dying, he looks up into heaven and he says, Father, may this not be held against them. And then we are told that presiding over the execution of Stephen was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who is now the Apostle Paul. And Stephen would have only known those words to say those words because of the testimony of those who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ himself as he cried about his betrayers, Father, 
May this not be held against them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's remarkable. You want to know what it means to live in Christ. It means to be a person who forgives. It means to be a person who cancels the debt, who calls out the offense, as Paul does here, and who cancels the debt from a fellow believer and sets them free. May it not be held against them. In fact, we haven't experienced full Christian community until that's happened. Until there's been an offense, there's been an injury, and there's been the giving and the receiving of this thing that Paul calls grace. We're just playing club. We're, we're, just, we're just playing house. Until things have got difficult and reconciliation and restoration have happened around this beautiful thing called grace. That's when we know that we're in a Christian community. Is that it's filled with forgiveness. It's filled with apologies. It's filled with restoration and renewal. So it's the answer to its own hurt. But also, it also, Christianity, Christian community, it holds the power of encouragement. Especially through words. These words Paul uses, grace be with you. It's a reminder of who you are according to Christ and what Christ has done. Everyone in Christian community is a Christian. And every Christian has three things that are irrevocably true about them. Completely forgiven, and therefore they have no basis for fear of condemnation or punishment. Completely blameless in the sight of God because they're covered and clothed with what the Bible calls the righteousness of Christ, and therefore no reason to hide and fake and pose anymore. And they're completely loved, which means that they've got nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. They're already freely accepted in the beloved. If these are the things that God says about us on our very worst day and and, and in our very worst seasons, and they are, then it is an absolute irrefutable fact that the very worst things about you cannot and will not ever be held against you in the tribunal of God. Those negative verdicts have been completely reversed. Those verdicts that doom you have been doomed at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You know, recently talked about sticks and stones and, and just the negative impact, the powerful, ne- powerfully negative impact of words, words that shame, words that cancel, words that belittle the gospel reverses those kinds of words. And, and, and the gospel gives us words that have a, a healing quality to them. The words grace be with you. It, it, it's meant to be received as a breath of fresh air. Ah, uh, uh, yes. 
Grace. I'm recentered. Grace. It's about grace. I stand in grace. We stand in grace. Yes. You know, Paul says to the Thessalonians, encourage each other, put courage into each other, encourage each other, and build each other up. This was Barnabas's great gift, which is probably why Mark is still in the game. Because Barnabas probably, had, we could only guess, had some kind of reconciling influence between Paul and Mark, the encourager. Encourage each other. Build each other up. The, the way Ann Voskamp says it is, only speak words that make souls stronger. So it's so one of the practical applications of this uh, that, that, that we get to enjoy every Monday is in our our Christ Press staff meetings, where we, we pronounce what we call benedictions or good words over one another. We commit at the beginning of every week to catch each other doing good. And this, this lands like a breath of fresh air, right, Matthew? It lands like a, a breath of fresh air in a world that's so oriented toward pointing out the worst in each other to have a place where we know that we're going to be pointing out the best in each other, and especially the best of what Christ is doing in and around and through each other. Paul does this with Timothy. He offers encouragement, but then he asks for it as well. The teacher asks for encouragement from the student. Do your best to come to me. This is a two-way relationship. This is two-way encouragement. And in fact, the the way I know that I've mentored you well is that you begin to mentor me in the grace and in the truth of Christ. Also, bring me the books. That's another way of saying, bring me the scriptures. Bring me the Old Testament, which is what they had at the time, and the parchments for writing letters. But the books, what he's asking Timothy to do is to bring him God words. You want to encourage me? You want to have a ministry to me while I'm here suffering in prison? Bring me some God words. Bring me the books. Bring me the Bible. Bring me scripture. This is why we have this time, and and hopefully we can get back to it soon, called passing the peace during during communion time. And we we remind you that this is not a time just to hang out, even though hanging out is wonderful. This is a time to pass God words back and forth to one another in the context of community. Or as it says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other. It's not just a preacher's job to to, to give the word to the people. But, But we do this with each other in all wisdom. You know, one of my older Christian mentors uh, just received a diagnosis that has him thinking about uh, his transition uh, into the next life. It's not immediate, but, but, but he has a disease that's incurable. And uh, once I reached out to him and I said, I have a book. It's a Christian book about death and grief. And I, I wondered if maybe you wanted a copy for yourself, just for your own processing during the season. And he said, you know, thank you. But I've come to find that the the words that really impact me around these things, around death and dying, they aren't the words found in books anymore. 
I just need straight up Bible. Give me the Psalms. Give me Romans 8. Give me Revelation 21 and 22. You know, give me 2 Corinthians 4. Give me Bible. Bring me the books. Bring me the books. Bring me the God words. And then, of course, you know, back to Mark. Here's another thing about Mark and Mark's connection to these words. May it not be held against them. Mark was to Peter as Timothy was to Paul. Peter was Mark's mentor. And Mark wrote one of the four Gospels. And in Mark's version of the Gospel... There's a part of the story that's told that isn't told anywhere else. No doubt because he got it directly from Peter. And that is when Christ rose from the dead and appeared to the women at the tomb. He said to the women, I want you to go encourage. I want you to go to the others and tell them I'm risen. But in Mark's gospel... It says, I want you to go tell the others and Peter that I'm risen and that I'm coming to them. And Peter, you let him know ahead of time that when I was praying from the cross, may it not be held against him. The father heard that prayer. And there's going to be a restoration. He has nothing to fear for me coming to him. You too has this wonderful song called, called Grace. One of the lines says that grace makes beauty out of ugly things. It's a great description of Christian community. That grace makes beauty out of that which is ugly in us. And this table is such a picture of that because this, this table brings beauty from the ugly. This table speaks of a betrayal, of a malicious betrayal. Betrayal of Jesus Christ, of which we were all participants. And it also speaks of a a savior, of a king, of a creator who became weak and who stood alone and nobody came to his defense. And he prayed in his final moments, may it not be held against them. If that doesn't turn us into grace-giving, forgiving people, what on earth will? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word, grace. We thank you that you do not Treat us as our sins deserve because Jesus has already absorbed all of the weight of what our sins deserve. Now all that's left is a table, a table that you invite us to, to feast with you and with each other and to know that grace is still with us and that you still do not hold our sins against us. That in Jesus we are forgiven and have nothing to fear. We are righteous in your sight and have nothing to hide. We are loved, adopted, kept, 
and therefore we have nothing to prove. So nourish us in these things now. Set apart this bread and this cup. Nourish us physically, nourish us spiritually uh, with the spirit of the one who called himself the bread of life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.